The following program contains views that are not necessarily those of the National Football League or the San Francisco 49ers. The ideas and opinions presented belong solely to the individuals that provide them. How can I say this without breaking? How can I say this without taking over? How can I put it down into words when it's almost too much for my soul alone? The way I feel about these players, these coaches, the staff, this organization, the 49er faithful, things that were accomplished here were very, very good. Great memories, great moments. Been the time of my life. I'll forever appreciate that. I'll be the first to tell you, if we aren't winning a Super Bowl, you should hold me accountable. You should jump down my throat. I welcome that, and I'm ready for the challenge. Our mission is very simple. The San Francisco 49ers win with class. We haven't won, and I don't think we've conducted ourselves with the level of class that I expect of our organization. This is a storied franchise that has captivated Americans ever since Joe Montana came to the team. Been fans ever since I was a kid myself in the good old days of Steve Young, Jerry Rice. They're my hometown team. Win together, lose together kind of thing. I've been a 49er fan since I was a little boy. I love the 49ers. I grew up watching football, so for me, it's one of my all-time biggest pastimes. We all remember watching all the Super Bowls. I can't live without them. They're my team, always. Always a diehard Niner fan. This is Document 49, the rise, fall, and rebirth of the San Francisco 49ers. The Prologue, Part 2. Who's got it better? Good afternoon, everybody. I think you all are aware that Mike Singletary has been dismissed as the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. I want to iterate my respect for Mike as an individual. I've learned a lot with Mike in the last several years with him being at the San Francisco 49ers. Obviously, we had anticipations, uh, expectations of being a playoff caliber team this year. You know, whether we were a 7-9 division winner or not didn't matter to me. I wanted to make sure that the San Francisco 49ers had an opportunity to compete for a Super Bowl which I felt like we had every expectation to do that. When that was not realized, I wanted to make sure that we were setting ourselves up for the remainder of this season, but more importantly, for next season. Welcome back to Document 49. My name is Nicholas Shelvin. Let's continue. Our story picks up on Monday, December 27th, 2010. 49er CEO Jed York stands before the local media at the San Francisco 49ers team facility in Santa Clara, California. Following a 25-17 road loss to the St. Louis Rams the prior day, York announces his decision to fire head coach Mike Singletary, ending the Hall of Fame linebacker's NFL coaching career with a record of 18 wins and 37 losses. Singletary's final game with the 49ers was an ugly one, most remembered today for his heated argument with Ohio State quarterback Troy Smith on the 49ers' sideline in the game's third quarter. Singletary's verbal altercation with the former Heisman winner harkened back to his previous conflicts with quarterback Alex Smith and tight end Vernon Davis, in addition to many other players during his tumultuous tenure. And after a sloppy game that featured both Troy and Alex Smith under center, with both quarterbacks failing to throw for over 300 yards combined, 
Jed York ultimately decided to end the shouting matches and turn the page on the Book of Singletary. When you look at some of the teams that have been successful out there, it's not about hiring the flashiest name as your GM or your head coach or both. It's about making sure that the GM and the head coach are really working together. And I think that's why you need your general manager, and your general manager is a person that is going to live and die with a coach. Even before the 2010 season ended, rumors began to surface in the press regarding who the 49ers would pursue to replace Mike Singletary as head coach. Yet the organization's search for a new general manager was far less ambiguous. After just two days following the 49ers' final game of the season, the 49ers officially announced that Vice President of Player Personnel Trent Baalke would assume command of the franchise as general manager. A former scout with the New York Jets and Washington Redskins, the Wisconsin-born office grinder had been employed with the organization since 2005 and was known for his meticulous study of college game film and tireless draft preparation. I've been in the league over 12 years. You know, I've been able to concentrate on the personnel side. That's my passion. That's my love. That's what I want to do. I'm very happy with the promotion I got and looking forward to the job. Oscar Aparicio and David Newman of the Niners Nation Better Rivals podcast return for part two of Document 49's prologue. So Trent Baalke is someone who, I guess we could say he's a mercurial figure. He took over in 2010 after the departure of Scott McLuhan. And of course, we didn't know this at the time, but Scott McLuhan was fighting an alcohol problem. And that was more than likely why he kind of exited from the 49ers organization. Indeed, in March of 2010, Singletary's final season as head coach, team president Jed York had announced that the 49ers were moving to, quote, mutually part ways with general manager Scott McLuhan. Also a former scout, Previously spending time with the Green Bay Packers and Seattle Seahawks, McLuhan worked alongside both Mike Nolan and Mike Singletary to transform the 49ers roster from its expansion team-like ways into a capable NFL competitor. Now in hindsight, it's clear that McLuhan, more than anyone, was the inspired hand that lifted the 49ers out of the decade of darkness and pushed them towards a bright and promising NFL future. Jennifer Lee Chan of Niners Nation also returns to Document 49 to share her perspective as our story continues. Trent Baalke was the successor to a very good scouting campaign and roster by Scott McLuhan. Scott McLuhan was the guy who found Frank Gore and Vernon Davis and Patrick Willis. He is one of the best scouts that's out there. McLuhan's skills for finding talent became the stuff of legend in San Francisco, but so was the former scout's drinking habit. Almost immediately after his departure was announced, rumors spread online that McLuhan's problems with alcohol had forced the 49ers to move on without him. In an interview years later with ESPN's Seth Wickersham, McLuhan revealed that divorce and other problems in his personal life had led him to escalate his drinking habit. McLuhan also stated to Wickersham that he felt tremendous guilt over the team's disastrous 2007 season and for having to fire Mike Nolan in 2008. To further summarize Wickersham's enduring profile McLuhan would not do it justice. I highly recommend you seek out the article for yourself to get the full story on McLuhan's departure. I'm hoping to speak with Scott on Document 49 in the future to learn more about him as a person and how he helped lift the 49ers out of salary cap hell. Well, we had a general manager last year. And if you recall, you know, Scott left for reasons that weren't expected. We've been evaluating Trent sort of in a GM-like role this year. So it's not that I'm opposed to a general manager. I, I believe that you should have a general manager with your team. McLuhan's departure left the 49ers without a general manager for the 2010 season. The organization's future heir to the throne, Trent Baalke, filled in on an interim basis during that year's draft. Now, in 2010, you really had no one to oversee the draft. Trent Baalke kind of filled in admirably, and the 2010 draft was actually pretty good. 
since then now it's come out that that was basically Scott McLuhan's board and Trent Baalke effectively followed it. This is something that Scott McLuhan said on Twitter on one of his Q&As. According to Greg Bedard of Sports Illustrated, Jed York began courting Trent Baalke for the general manager position during the 49ers' five-game losing streak at the start of the 2010 season. Baalke was then officially promoted in January of 2011, inheriting a roster loaded with talent, thanks to the efforts of former general manager Scott McLuhan. Trent Baalke, he inherited a good team, and Scott McLuhan was a great GM. At first, you weren't sure if it was his guys that were good or Scotty's guys that were good. Because I remember when he first came on, he was getting talked about as, oh, he's like an executive of the year because he's finding all this talent. Reception regarding Balky's promotion was generally positive at the time, from both the local media and the 49er faithful. And Balky's early performance during the 2010 and 2011 drafts indicated that the organization was indeed in good hands. It's funny with Balky because he was executive of the year, I believe. The 2010 draft, we picked up a couple of key pieces there. I mean, that was Anthony Davis, Mikey Upati, Navarro Bowman came from that draft. And then, of course, had the 2011 draft that at the time looked excellent. Your first two picks in that draft were Alden Smith and Colin Kaepernick. And you're like, man, we just hit on two of the most important positions and then also managed to pick up quality contributors, guys like Chris Culliver, Kendall Hunter. Trent Baalke's claim to fame at the time was Alden Smith. I mean, he was one of those players that was destined to have likely upwards of a $100 million contract. Incredibly talented, but obviously with his most recent run-ins with the law, not going to play another snap in the NFL. But as Baalke began to seize the spotlight in San Francisco, there was another prominent name within the organization that continued to raise questions in the Bay Area. Parag Marate. You were one of the first ones to implement statistical analysis in general football, which wasn't done that much in the NFL at that time. Walk us through the role of analytics in sports, specifically football. Sure. The one thing I should point out is that the idea that analytics didn't exist in the NFL is a, is a bit of a misnomer. Coaches and scouts have been using analytics for as long as the NFL has been around. To someone who doesn't know Parag, I would say he is kind of like the man, the myth, the legend. If you had the luxury of jumping into a DeLorean and going back into the history of 49ers, any moment in time is going to give you a little different answer of what Parag Marate is, who he is and what he does, and his value to the franchise. Marate before is the guy that you don't know about. The guy that's behind the scenes doing some analytics stuff, which nobody ever really has a firm grasp on what that means anyway. A man of mystery for much of the Niners New Testament, Parag Marate's place in the 49ers front office has generally been shrouded in secrecy by the organization. You can't even find him on Wikipedia. A native of Saratoga, Marate officially joined the 49ers in 2001, though the exact nature of his role during that time is often left to conjecture. I was a management consultant coming out of undergrad. I was put on a lot of sports type projects. And then Coach Walsh, Coach Bill Walsh, hired Bain, the company I was working for, to work on a project for the 2001 draft to evaluate the draft picks. Not the players, but the actual value of the slots, like an exchange rate. So I was put on that project. It was a pro bono almost type case from Bain. Marate later led the charge in researching candidates for the 49ers head coaching search in 2005. According to the Chronicle's Kevin Lynch, Marate studied 120 different NFL coaches to attempt to determine for what makes for a successful leader in the National Football League. Marate then submitted five candidates to be interviewed by CEO John York and himself for the head coaching position. Those men were Patriots defensive coordinator Romeo Cornell, Titans offensive coordinator Mike Heimerdinger, Titans defensive coordinator Jim Schwartz, Giants defensive coordinator Tim Lewis, and York's ultimate pick for the job, 
Ravens defensive coordinator Mike Nolan. A lot of data shows that college coaches making the jump to the NFL uh, without any prior NFL experience, there's a much higher risk factor. I mean, obviously, it's the same thing as player evaluation. It's the same thing with uh, looking for coaches, same thing and looking for just talent in the front office, whether it be in business development, sponsorship, wherever it is. You can use data to help you identify maybe a pool of talent or pool of players and, or a pool of coaches. Um, but then at the end of the day, you have to make sure that you match you know, what type of personality would best manage or get the most out of our players. After the 49ers hired Nolan, Marate earned the title of Director of Football Operations. It was then that Marate began finding his true purpose with the 49ers, becoming the team's chief contract negotiator and all-around salary cap wizard. In 2001, Coach Walsh asked me to come over full-time and I started doing a lot of just salary cap research, how to structure contracts, how to do escalators, de-escalators, things like that. Then my role started to grow. I became our chief contract negotiator right after I finished at Stanford in 2004 and just been growing since. And now he's the guy that's going to make sure that they never enter salary cap hell again. He's the guy that can make you feel comfortable if they sign a high price free agent, that that contract is structured in a way that's not going to kill the 49ers down the road. The 49ers have become so good at managing contracts and managing their salary cap because of Marate that you're not even really that worried about it. Like you're just like, okay, I'm going to assume that this contract has X, Y, and Z good things in it for the 49ers to be able to get out of it if they need to. And it's going to to be structured in a positive way for them. And now I don't need to worry about my team falling in a situation where we're going to have to jettison talented players again and be stuck where we can't add new talented players for several years because of our salary cap situation. Yet for many years after, Marate was still known to wear many hats within the organization. In both 2007 and 2008, there were reports from the Press Democrats' Matt Mayoko that Marate was involved in assisting with coaching decisions on game days under both Mike Nolan and Mike Singletary, including support with replay reviews and providing stats to the coaching staff during play. Because of this, Marate would again find himself as a modest scapegoat amongst 49er fans due to his ambiguous role with the team and the 49ers' poor performance during that time. Eventually, Marate was promoted to 49ers Chief Operating Officer in 2011 and was heavily involved in the construction of Levi Stadium. When I came in, I really started to identify three key areas where analytics can be used to continue to augment what we already do on the field with respect to game management. Number two is personnel evaluation, so really trying to identify physical traits or athletic characteristics that are good predictors of performance. And then number three is the salary cap. You really need to focus on how do you maximize return and minimize risk. It's really not dissimilar from what a portfolio manager of a hedge fund has to do. That's how you have to manage your salary cap because in order to be consistently good for a long period of time, you've got to make sure that you can manage the ebbs and flows of player contracts. He is the guy who worked out Jimmy Garoppolo's contract so that it's front-loaded so that the 49ers don't get in the situation that the Seahawks are in now where they have to get rid of all their star players because they can afford them. Especially in regards to, let's say, Richard Sherman's contract, it turns out that very little of it is guaranteed. Richard Sherman is basically making a bet on himself, but still, Prague put together a contract that couldn't be matched by any other team. Seattle couldn't match it, the Lions couldn't match it, and Jimmy Garoppolo, who was the highest paid quarterback for about a month, while it looks like a ton of money, it still is very cap friendly. So I know the better rivals guys call him Prague Morathlete because he's kind of like a mathlete. <laughs> you know, if you were to ask us who Prague Morate is now, I would say he is a chief negotiator and salary cap wizard, someone who I've recently started to refer to as a Marathlete. 
because of his unique skill at creating contracts that are ridiculously team friendly. He did so with Colin Kaepernick and he's done so with Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, Parag Marate is a valuable asset to what the 49ers are trying to build to make sure they never get back to salary cap hell. But if you would have asked this two years ago, we probably would have said he's some egghead who needs to be out of the franchise. And if you would have asked this six or seven years ago, we probably would have been like, who? Until recently, confusion about Parag Marate's exact role with the 49ers was common in the Bay Area. Hence why the promotion of Trent Baalke received almost universal praise when it was announced by the team in early 2011. It was simply unknown to outsiders that Baalke had benefited from both Marate's salary cap expertise and Scott McLuhan's 2010 draft board. Regardless, Baalke's tenure as 49ers general manager officially commenced in January of 2011. And along with CEO Jed York and the Marathlete in tow, the search for a new head coach began. Change. Trying a new restaurant. Getting a different haircut. Taking an alternative jogging route. It is easy to make changes in our lives when the adjustment is seemingly insignificant. Unless we stop to think about it. Everything we do, each action we take or do not take, creates a unique and uncorrectable outcome for every single second of every single day of our entire lives. There's a fork in the road. Do you go left or right? You're late for work. Do you take the freeway or the city streets? You're falling down the rabbit hole. Do you take the red pill or the blue one? Whatever choices we make, all that remains is hope. The notion that the change was made for the better. For a life without change is stale and stagnant. Simply put, without risk and without change, there can be no progress. Change. It didn't take long for the rumors to surface in the press. Mere days after Mike Singletary had been fired, Tim Kawakami of the San Jose Mercury reported that Jed York already had two head coaching candidates in mind. Former Oakland Raiders and Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach John Gruden and Stanford University head coach Jim Harbaugh. I wouldn't say we're strictly looking at an offensive-minded head coach, but I think we've had a lot of problems on the offensive side of the ball. So if it's not an offensive-minded head coach, it's got to be a coach that has experience in dealing with the NFL, in dealing with putting together a staff. So I wouldn't say we're only looking at offensive-minded people, but if it is a defensive-minded head coach, it's got to be somebody that understands how to put an offensive staff together. The 49ers' pursuit of Jim Harbaugh was short, but full of intrigue nonetheless. Endless reports regarding Harbaugh's coaching future would dominate Twitter and sports websites like Pro Football Talk for three straight days. By the end of the week, it seemed as if hardly anyone ever had a clear answer on where Harbaugh was headed following his time at Stanford. Thus, here is now a recap of how Jim Harbaugh became head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Tuesday night, January 4th, 2011. Jim Harbaugh returns to the Bay Area following a 40-12 Orange Bowl victory over Virginia Tech in Miami, Florida. Do you think this was the final game that you coached at Stanford? Oh, please, please, give me a break. 
you know, have some respect for the game, and it's about the performance tonight of these players, and uh, I love them. The following morning, Wednesday, January 5th, Harbaugh meets with the 49ers at team headquarters in Santa Clara for five to six hours. Reports emerged from CSN Bay Area that the Niners are prepared to give Harbaugh significant personnel power with a contract worth approximately $5 million per season. Later that afternoon, a new competitor for Harbaugh's services emerges, the Miami Dolphins. ESPN reports that Dolphins owner Steve Ross and general manager Jeff Ireland have flown to the Bay Area with an offer to make Harbaugh the highest paid coach in the NFL, with a salary worth seven to eight million dollars annually. That same afternoon, the University of Michigan fires head coach Rich Rodriguez after a disappointing three-year tenure. Michigan Athletic Director David Brandon then states to the press that he is talking with Harbaugh about the job with the Wolverines, but also states that he believes Harbaugh now wants to coach in the NFL and not at his alma mater. The connection points that Jim Harbaugh has with the University of Michigan are plentiful, and there's as many stories rambling around out there about what Jim Harbaugh is thinking and going to do. I don't want to speak on behalf of Jim. I don't want to speak on behalf of the people who say they're speaking on behalf of Jim. Uh, Jim's got decisions to make. Obviously, Jim's a great coach. He had a great season. I think the world of him, I have a terrific relationship with him. But I will tell you again, my personal belief is that Jim Harbaugh is going to end up with a really, really challenging opportunity in the NFL. That's what I think. We'll see. The next morning, Thursday, January 6th, ESPN's John Clayton reports that Harbaugh has turned down Michigan's offer of $5.2 million a season. Shortly after that news breaks, Stanford quarterback Andrew Luck announces that he will return to play for the Cardinal and forego entering the NFL draft that April. You said in there you had talked to uh, Coach Harbaugh. How was that discussion? Uh, it was very civil. You know, I sort of told him, hey, Coach, I'm coming back. Good luck with your decision. He said, oh, that's great. You know, I'm happy for you. I knew you would, something like that. You know, and uh, he said, yeah, you still haven't made a decision. I'm trying to make one now and sort of left it at that. Harbaugh then meets with school officials at Stanford who offer him a new contract. The NFL Network then reports that the Stanford proposal surpasses the standing offer from the 49ers. After Harbaugh's sit-down at Stanford, ESPN's Adam Schefter reports that the Denver Broncos are attempting to arrange an interview with Harbaugh to replace Josh McDaniels, who was fired earlier that week. Schefter also reports that Broncos team officials, including general manager John Elway, are discussing flying to the Bay Area to interview Harbaugh in person. Meanwhile, a source then tells ESPN that the 49ers are preparing a backup plan, just in case Harbaugh decides to take his talents to South Beach or Denver. Interviewing the recently fired Josh McDaniels by phone, as well as meeting with Raiders offensive coordinator Hugh Jackson. So for those of you keeping score at home, Michigan is out. The 49ers, Dolphins, Broncos, and Stanford are still in. Then, the rumor mill really picks up steam. That same Thursday afternoon, ESPN's Dan Levitard states on his radio program that Jim Harbaugh had officially accepted the Dolphins' head coaching position. But 30 minutes later, Miami Herald columnist Armando Salguero shoots down that report, stating that Dolphins head coach Tony Sperano is still employed with the organization. Another 30 minutes pass, and Adam Schefter then reports that the Dolphins had not yet interviewed a minority candidate and therefore were not in compliance with the NFL's Rooney rule. And mere minutes later, Fox's Jay Glazer then reports that the Dolphins had made the decision to forego their pursuit of Harbaugh and retain head coach Tony Sperano. That brings us to Friday morning, January 7th. The Denver Post reports that the Broncos are proceeding in their head coaching search without further inquiries to Jim Harbaugh. And without much additional commotion, at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 
word finally leaked to the Bay Area press that Jim Harbaugh would indeed be the new head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, with a press conference scheduled for that afternoon. Our top story for Friday, the San Francisco 49ers have made it official. They've got their man hiring Stanford head coach Jim Harbaugh to a five-year deal worth a reported $25 million. Harbaugh replaces Mike Singletary, who led the Niners to a third-place finish in the NFC West, going 5-11 last season after many experts picked the team to win their division. Reports indicate the Miami Dolphins and Denver Broncos also pursued Harbaugh before the coach accepted the 49ers' offer this afternoon. At 47 years old, Harbaugh leaves the college ranks with a record of 58 wins and 27 losses, including a 29-21 mark in four years at Stanford. The Michigan grad also played 15 years in the NFL at quarterback, most notably for the Chicago Bears and Indianapolis Colts. Harbaugh is also the brother of Ravens head coach John Harbaugh. Harbaugh would become the 49ers' 18th head coach in franchise history, signing a five-year contract worth $25 million, double the amount per season that CEO Jed York had paid Mike Singletary. Tim Kawakami of the San Jose Mercury called the week, quote, the weirdest three days in recent Bay Area sports history, and also claimed that the hiring of Harbaugh was a huge victory for both Jed York and Trent Baalke. Everybody wanted Harbaugh. At least I remember it became clear that they were going to be looking for a new head coach. It was like, man, Harbaugh's coming out. Andrew Luck's coming out. Like, let's go get them both, right? Once he went out and made that sort of big hire, and it was proof that we can go out and get one of the guys that every other team kind of wanted to grab, have that feeling like he did what needed to be done to win that battle and make sure that Harbaugh landed there. I think that was a very positive thing. First of all, thank, I'd like to thank everybody for coming. I'm honored. I'm humbled to be standing here as the general manager of the 49ers. It's an exciting time for me, but it should be an exciting time for all of us. If you're a 49er fan, this is the start of a new generation. And without further ado, I would like to call up the next head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh's first press conference with the 49ers was held at the Palace Hotel in downtown San Francisco. Black limousines, red carpets, a long folding table in the press room covered with a black tablecloth adorned with a collection of unopened plastic water bottles. It was a historic afternoon that gave the football world its first peek at the intense psyche of the 47-year-old coach that would lead the 49ers for the next four seasons. I'm excited about the San Francisco 49ers, uh, one of the legendary franchises in all of football. It's the perfect competitive opportunity for me and the rest of the San Francisco organization to be a part of a team I can feel the enthusiasm coursing through my veins right now. I am proud to accept this. I accept this competitive challenge willingly and uh, look very much forward to it. Thank you. Harbaugh said all the right things that afternoon. He openly proclaimed his admiration of Bill Walsh. He also claimed money was not a factor in his decision, telling the press, quote, I knew in my heart and my gut the right decision was with the San Francisco 49ers. The Book of Harbaugh had officially begun in San Francisco. The San Francisco 49ers, with the two men I talked about earlier, Jed York and, and Trent Baalke, getting to know them, just talking football with them, so hearing their vision, uh, hearing their plan for the organization and uh, how we were going to go about winning so much was the same that I thought 
you know, about work ethic and integrity and, and doing it with class and doing it as a team with broad shoulders, everybody fighting for who takes the accountability, you know, was just something that I felt strongly about that it gave the, the competitive opportunity uh, to win. And that's what you have to do at this level. I mean, without excuse, uh, without hesitation, uh, losing is not an option. Uh, and uh, that's what we aim to do. Yet the most interesting quote that afternoon came from newly hired general manager Trent Balky, who said the following about Harbaugh to the press. I met this man about six, seven years ago at a college all-star game, and I kind of fell in love with his energy. He had passion. In order to succeed in this business, I think you have to have that. And that was really something that I focused in on, and I started to watch him throughout uh, his years, San Diego, and his time at Stanford. You know, it really became evident that this guy had the it factor. He had what we were looking for. While we know now that Balky's love for Jim Harbaugh wouldn't last, that Friday afternoon in downtown San Francisco marked the dawn of a new and special era for the 49ers as an organization. Jim Harbaugh had officially arrived, and what followed was one of the most dominant and successful coaching tenures in NFL history. You know, the Harbaugh years were some of the best years of 49ers football since the 90s, mostly because the Niners were terrible for so long. When you don't expect to be good, especially in a strike-shortened year, and especially with the team that supposedly had question marks at the quarterback position, and you have this very energetic, big personality coach come in and say, no, we can win, and then the team actually does it, that just gives a fan base a jolt of energy that they haven't had and that we hadn't had since probably 2003. And Jim Harbaugh, more than anyone, could communicate a vision like no other. He is so passionate about the game. It really kind of sparks players. It ignites something in a team that can pull them together. He's one of those great motivators and leaders. And being a player previously in the NFL for quite some time makes him relatable to players that have been on the roster for a while. The first year of the Jim Harbaugh era in San Francisco was overwhelmingly successful, both on and off the football field. Due to the strike-shortened season in 2011, the 49ers were prevented from doing much to improve the team outside of the draft. That meant no organized team activities, minicamp, or the signing of free agents. I'm an optimist, you know, and I'm going to look at it that way, plan it for the offseason as if there is going to be no disruption. You know, scheduling, off-season workouts, weight workouts, mini camps, etc. Just uh, planning for there to be no interruption. If there is, then we'll have to adjust. But I'm optimistic that something will get worked out. You could say that maybe it's a disadvantage for us. We haven't given our players any kind of a playbook or they don't know what our schemes are. But it's up to us to adjust, to overcome any and all obstacles that are out there. And, and we'll think through it and come up with the plan. During this strange and uncertain time in San Francisco, and the NFL at large, 49ers quarterback Alex Smith had suddenly become a player without a team, as his contract with the Red and Gold had expired. However, when legal proceedings created a brief break in the lockout that April, Smith was able to meet with Harbaugh, who handed him a playbook and tapes of the West Coast offense. Smith then took it upon himself to hold Camp Alex that July, organizing drills with the 49ers offense at San Jose State which included participation from players like Vernon Davis, Michael Crabtree, Colin Kaepernick, and members of the offensive line. Basically, I just started calling everybody, texting everybody, trying to arrange it, everyone on offense, that is. It's something I've been thinking about for quite a while before I did it, like I said, coming up to the draft and there after the draft. And just wanted to make sure that if we did something, you know, we were actually going to get something out of it. I didn't want us just to be going out there to go out there and 
a PR stunt. You know, I, I really wanted it to be beneficial. So that's kind of why I waited so long to, you know, felt like I at least had somewhat of a grasp on the ABCs of the offense. That's basically what we were trying to get out of the way so that when we were getting out here getting coached um, and you heard a call, you didn't have to sit there and what does that mean? I mean, at least there'd be some kind of familiarity there and you could really focus on the details of what you were getting coached to do. When he got hired, that was the year of the player strike. Because of that, Alex had to hold his own quarterback camps to try and gel with the team, not knowing if Harbaugh was going to replace him or not. And I remember a lot of the fans wanted Harbaugh to replace Alex. And Jim Harbaugh said, no, I sat down and talked to him, and no, he's our quarterback. I was excited to see what was going on. Players were taking the initiative and organizing workouts and practice, and hopefully that bodes well for us. And you know everybody that participated in those workouts We'll have a leg up. I hope that's the case. The player lockout officially ended on July 25, 2011, and the 49ers immediately got to work. Alex Smith was the team's first priority, with Trent Baalke signing the quarterback to a one-year deal worth $5 million the day after the lockout concluded, making it Smith's seventh year with the organization. The 49ers front office then began working the phones, as the lockout had left many talented veterans unemployed heading into the new season. The hall of players they emerged with was remarkable. Safety Dante Whitner, cornerback Carlos Rogers, center Jonathan Goodwin, wide receiver Braylon Edwards, and kicker David Akers. Trent Baalke did a great job. Really pleased with you know the guys that we have on our team and uh, I thought it was well done. Time will tell. Because of these late additions, a superb draft class, and an already talented roster built by Scott McLuhan, the deck was now stacked tremendously in the 49ers' favor entering the 2011 season. Flanked by offensive coordinator Greg Roman and defensive coordinator Vic Fangio, Jim Harbaugh then coached the 49ers to their best season in almost 15 years. The 2011 schedule was filled with an abundance of memorable moments, including wide receiver Ted Ginn returning both a kickoff and a punt for touchdowns week one at home against the Seahawks. Record-setting day by Ted Ginn. Ted's a stud, heck of a football player, and a great guy. Nobody would be uh, disputing that. A 20-point comeback victory on the road against Andy Reid, Michael Vick, and the Philadelphia Eagles in week four, punctuated by a tremendous force fumble by defensive end Justin Smith to end the game. I mean, in terms of football plays, Justin Smith's play that he made against the Philadelphia Eagles in 2011, where he was rushing the passer, they threw a receiver screen, receivers 15, 20 yards downfield, Justin is tracking the ball, running to the ball, and then clubbed it out and secured a victory for us. Another comeback victory on the road against the 5-0 Detroit Lions in week six, featuring a fourth and goal touchdown pass from Alex Smith to Delaney Walker to win the game, with Jim Harbaugh and Lions head coach Jim Schwartz nearly exchanging blows following their post-game handshake. You show your emotions, you know, and that's okay to do. You know, whether you're a football player or a football coach or just a man in general, that's, uh, they run the full gamut. I was excited about the football game, excited about the way our players played and, uh, you know, got revved up. Do you think Jim Schwartz did anything wrong? Um, you know, I'm not, we're not, uh, not here today to, to throw any salvos. You know, there's not going to be any salvos coming out of the West Coast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> A dominant showing on Monday Night Football against the Pittsburgh Steelers in Week 15, with power to Candlestick Park going out just a few minutes prior to kickoff. When the lights came back on, the 49ers defense was lights out, forcing quarterback Ben Roethlisberger into three interceptions, three sacks, and two fumbles. 
Jim, in The end result was a 13-3 season for the Red and Gold, with a first-round bye in the NFC playoffs and Jim Harbaugh crowned as Associated Press NFL Coach of the Year. And all the while, the team had adopted a new attitude in the locker room under Harbaugh's guidance, an inspiring combination of confidence, humility, family, and hard work. There was uh, just a little saying around the house uh, my dad would always use, and it was, who's got it better than us? And we'd all respond, nobody. We could be driving in the car or whatever we were doing. He'd say it, and we'd respond, nobody. And we really thought that. We didn't think there was anybody else that possibly could have it better than us. Who's got it better than us? No! Humble hearts, mighty men. Attack the day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Iron sharpens iron, Freddie P. Soft, and of course, who's got it better? Even today, it's difficult to document the true magnitude of Jim Harbaugh's influence on the 2011 San Francisco 49ers. He was able to, especially in those first couple of years, bring the team together with a couple of sayings and axioms that even made it into the relationship that I have with my girlfriend, then girlfriend, now wife. You know, we used to say, who's got it better than us? Nobody to each other all the time. Like, attack the day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Who says that? No one talks like that. He was able to marshal a team of people and I think a fan base and create enthusiasm where there was none before. That whole movement that he started, like, who's got it better than us? It was just so much fun to go to the games and, like, shout that and everybody will respond. That just made it so much fun to be a Niner fan when we had just been bad for so long. It's the 49er way, you know, it's the team, the team, the team. You know, everybody does a little and it adds up to be a lot. Nobody above the team, nobody more important, nobody less important that passion and that fire and that energy, it's invigorating and I think it's kind of the kick in the pants that the team needed at the time. He gets things out of players other people can't get. Follow while I ball like Smith, Justin, Alex, out and take your pick. 49, gold time, with a forever faithful Frank Goldgrind. Over the past 10 to 12 years, who's your favorite 49er? Frank Gore, always solid player, gonna be a Hall of Famer. Frank Gore, one of the greatest players in 49er history. He's everything you want in a football player. He's a good teammate, he's tough, but yet he's awesome off the field, just a good dude. Frank Gore, well, I'm wearing his jersey today. One of the truest players of the game. I just think he was one of the big reasons we were able to stay a good running team was because of Frank Gore. They gonna hit from start to finish. Ain't talking beats and licks, I'm talking Bowman and Willis. Patrick Willis, everything he did, he was a great football player, not only a football player, you know, a great person off the field. Patrick Willis, passion, heart. Patrick Willis brought it every single game. It's fun to watch. I mean, we always liked Patrick Willis just because he was a solid player. Um, Joe Staley, I also really like. I was a real big Deshaun Goldston fan. I liked his hard-hitting safety ways. So he was good with Whitner. Them two together, that was special. Antoine Bolin. He just seemed kind of like a straight shooter, not in it for the glory type. Someone that genuinely enjoyed the game. Get it on. 
Get it on. We in need of another ring, no resting. Hardball, you got a question? Who's got it better than us? Starts with Frank, Justin Smith, Alex Smith, Joe Staley, Dante Whitner. There's so many of those type of guys on our football team that are displaying that kind of leadership and courage that bodes well for us. On the field, running back Frank Gore thrived in Greg Roman's offense, a power running scheme that often featured heavy doses of pre snap movement and the use of additional offensive linemen. Quarterback Alex Smith also found unprecedented success under Harbaugh calling two plays in the huddle and introducing the commonly overheard pre-snap phrases of and which would signal to the offense which play would be run. And under the guidance of Vic Fangio, the 49ers defense would lead the league in a variety of statistical categories, including turnover differential, run defense, and points surrendered per game. Frank, can you just talk about the whole season that you guys have had? Why do you think it's just clicked for you and everybody else around you? No, I got to give it up to our coaches. You know, we have a great coach, Coach Harbaugh, and he have a great guys who are around him and the coaching staff who love what they do. And I say as a team, I feel that we always had the talent, and now we have the right people in front of us who can lead us the way. And, you know, we just believe in our coaches and believing in ourselves and just going out there having fun and, and, and paying off. The winning tradition had finally returned to the San Francisco 49ers in 2011 and the faithful fans quickly embraced their new company of heroes. On offense, talented playmakers like wide receiver Michael Crabtree and tight ends Vernon Davis and Delaney Walker established themselves as both efficient blockers and effective contributors in the passing game. On defense, padded warriors like defensive end Justin Smith, safety Deshaun Golson, and linebackers Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman roamed the middle of the field, hungry for violence and feasting on unsuspecting ball carriers. And standing tall on the sideline, wearing his signature $8 khaki pants, a loose-fitting black sweatshirt, and a black 49ers cap with a curved bill, was the man many refer to as the next Bill Walsh. Though on game days, Jim Harbaugh's demeanor contrasted greatly with that of the former 49ers coaching legend. The thing I want to say is, that's the most physical 30 minutes I've ever seen you guys play, right there. That was a physical 30 minutes of football, and it was a beautiful day! Who could possibly have it better than us? Nobody! He was like a world wrestling entertainment federation, whatever it is, kind of persona, yet he was our head coach. The players used to wear workman shirts. They were blue and they had their names on them. I remember a picture with Alex Smith in one of these. He would only wear one thing every day, the black sweater and the khakis and the white shoes, because he didn't want to have to decide on what to wear in the morning because he was focused on football 100% of the time. He would untuck his shirt at the end of every game because his work was done. I remember doing that when we won the NFC Championship game. I was so excited. I was like, untuck my shirt. And I was like, hell yeah. The dude would like quote Civil War generals in press conferences. This is a head coach who not only brought a lot of character and vigor to a moribund franchise, but he also did it with a bit of flair that made you excited that he was your coach. I think that was one of the great things about Harbaugh to me was he's such a fun person to root for, right? He's got all of like the quirky things that he does, all the weird like motivational strategies that are kind of fun. And there's the sideline antics and none of that stuff would have mattered and it would have gotten very tired very quickly if he wouldn't have been such an outstanding head coach. I mean, Bill Barnwell of now ESPN, then Grantland, had an entire article how Jim Harbaugh was the most valuable person in football. 
and that basically a lot of the strategies, the game management stuff that he brought to the table would give the 49ers such an advantage that really no other head coach outside of basically Bill Belichick was able to kind of match that. And so I think you had a head coach that was incredibly talented, that was able to turn this team around so quickly. And then you just had a lot of kind of the extra stuff that comes with Jim Harbaugh that made it fun in the process. I mean, I think it all starts with the competitiveness of our players, the group of guys that we got in our locker room and the pride that they take in their own individual performance and the way the team plays. It's a great group to motivate because they already are motivated. That's what makes it such a team that's a joy to coach. Under Jim Harbaugh's command, winning became nearly routine in San Francisco. In just four seasons, the coach and khakis won 44 regular season games and lost only 19. In the postseason, Harbaugh led the Niners to three consecutive NFC Championship games, an unprecedented feat for a rookie head coach in the National Football League. And of course, Harbaugh's mighty men came just five yards short of capturing their sixth Lombardi trophy in Super Bowl forty-seven against the Baltimore Ravens. Make no mistake, because of Jim Harbaugh and his staff, the San Francisco 49ers had finally been liberated from the decade of darkness. Now, the red and gold stood proudly in the light, amongst the rest of the elite teams in the National Football League. He is still, to this day, top five in win percentage in NFL history. His win percentage at 69.5, almost 70% of the games that he coached, he won. And that's behind only Guy Chamberlain, John Madden, Vince Lombardi, and George Allen. His win percentage is up there with the greats. You know, he talked a lot of crap, but he produced. And if you're going to be arrogant, you at least have to back it up. As a fan, like, I didn't really realize what we had. He realized that Frank Gore is a Hall of Fame running back. And so instead of putting all the responsibility on Alex Smith, he's like, we're going to build this around Frank Gore. We're going to use this offensive line that we had when we had Upati and Anthony Davis, and they were good, and they were these two anchors. And that made things easier on Alex. I mean, Vic Fangio was an awesome defensive coordinator, and he utilized all our talent to the fullest extent. Like, all of a sudden, you've got Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman are, like, the two most dominant linebackers in the NFL. Just to see how Harbaugh could put it all together and see all the talent that he had around him. I mean, that was a special time to be a Niner fan. It was incredible that he turned a team around that, again, had been for the better part of a decade awful and then raised expectations. I mean, going to three straight NFC championship games, I mean, it was really on the back of Harbaugh and what he brought to the table and what he was able to get out of the talent on the roster that he was able to change expectations for that franchise so incredibly soon. During Jim Harbaugh's first year as head coach, the red and gold produced a litany of extraordinary moments on the playing field and the 2011 NFC Divisional Playoff game, where the 49ers hosted the New Orleans Saints at Candlestick Park, just may have been the team's finest hour, producing a collection of unforgettable moments. Such as, Safety Dante Whitner colliding with Saints running back Pierre Thomas near the 49ers goal line, causing Thomas to fumble the ball back to the 49ers. Safety Deshaun Goldson nearly returning a Drew Brees interception for a touchdown. Defensive end Justin Smith, reaching over Saints tackle Javon Bushrod to nearly sack Drew Brees with just one arm. Quarterback Alex Smith's triumphant 28-yard touchdown run down the far sideline of Candlestick Park, with offensive tackle Joe Staley clearing the way with a key block at the 10-yard line. And of course, the catch three, also known as the grab or the Vernon Post. A 14-yard touchdown pass from Alex Smith to tight end Vernon Davis for the game's final score with only 14 seconds remaining in regulation. A fitting moment of glory for two men who had struggled for years with adversity and 
personal hardships of all shapes and sizes. From the 14, Smith in the gun with Gord is left hand. Alex takes a snap. Alex looking the post. And it's caught! Got it! Touchdown, Niners! Do you believe it? Vernon Davis with the play of his life. Alex Smith with the play of his life. The play of dreams. Can you feel candlestick? And never, ever doubt Alex Smith ever again. Right now, I mean, it feels like the best. I can't recall a win like this, this kind of spectacular fashion. When you hug uh, Vernon, what did you tell him? I said he's a great football player. There's a special place in your heart for, for players that play great in the big games. I mean, you love them all. You really do. You love all the players. And it means that these guys are my heroes. I mean, they really are. Look at these players. Uh, I'm just really proud of them. Love the way they competed and, and fought today. Is it fair to say that you personally are playing with a chip on your shoulder and that there's some redemption? I don't know. I, I guess I kind of feel like this whole team maybe is playing like that, if you want to call it that. I don't know how many wins we were picked to have at the beginning of the season. It wasn't many. I don't know where we picked to come in the division, all of that. You know, not a lot of people were in our corner. It was just us here uh, working. I don't, I don't think it's changed the mindset in the locker room, I guess. Alex just told me that you've learned how to become a professional, and that's led to you becoming a team leader. When did you decide to embrace that role, and how difficult was that path for you? It started when Mike, Coach Mike Singletary was here. He sent me to the locker room. From that point on, I was, you know, I just kept my head up and just kept going down the straight path because I, I knew from there, from the talk that we had, you know, I was going the wrong direction. So I changed my life around and I became more of a leader because in the beginning it was all about me. When it's more about the team and you put the team first, you have more success. And I'm very grateful that he was able to be here and help me make that transition. But the playoff classic against the Saints was merely the beginning of Harbaugh's legacy as head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. The game against the Saints, that divisional game where you get Vernon Post to win the game, which was probably the best Niner game of my adult life. A close second is probably the Green Bay game just because of how fun that was. The game in Foxborough against Tom Brady. Because to me, that was the game where the 49ers could hang with the elites. Jim Harbaugh could hang with Bill Belichick. Colin Kaepernick could go toe-to-toe against a Belichick coach defense in Foxborough. And that, to me, was a game where it was like, yeah, we expect to play against the elites. And these are games that we can win, which means that we can beat any team. Was this for you as a coach? I mean, is this your biggest win in two years as a coach, do you think? They all feel like, you know, like as a coach, as a player, you love all these wins. Used to live next to a train station in Chicago. You know, it's like the more you hear the train, the less you hear it. I feel that way with our team in terms of pressure in big games. You know, the more you hear it, the less you hear it. The more you feel it, the less you feel it. The Packers game where Colin Kaepernick just went absolutely insane and had the crazy amount of rushing yards and what they were able to do to that defense. And then I think the comeback in Atlanta to get into the Super Bowl there, a lot of things in that first 10 game stretch with Colin Kaepernick there were I think some of the really special moments of the Jim Harbaugh era. Navarra Bowman had the pick at the stick and what a fantastic final moment at Candlestick that was to finish off that game where it looked like they weren't going to win. It's one of the best Four Niners memories that I can remember. You know, I'm blessed, man, you know, doing something right in the practice week and uh, preparing well and, uh, you know, knowing how he moves and where he throws the ball at. The instinct and the training that he has to see the ball released and then track it to go get it on a tackle. I don't know what the percentage of athletes that can do that, 
or would do that to have that kind of instinct and ability. But uh, you know, Navarro Bowman does. He made a tremendous play, and uh, I'll remember that till the day I die. The pick at the stick. That was the last game in Candlestick. I was there at that game, and Navarro Bowman running that pick against Atlanta, which those were all incredible moments, and they were all there because of a coach who really had his hand on the pulse of both the team and a franchise. Colin Kaepernick's 444 combined yards against the Packers in the 2012 NFC wildcard game at Candlestick Park, with 181 of those yards coming on the ground. His stunning performance that same season against the New England Patriots in Foxborough, where he threw for four touchdowns. Dominant performances against a variety of lesser opponents, both at home and on the road. The team's newfound rivalry with the New Orleans Saints, and of course, their current one with the Seattle Seahawks. And the aforementioned trip to Super Bowl 47 against the Baltimore Ravens in New Orleans. Regardless of the challenger, the San Francisco 49ers under Jim Harbaugh produced much-watched football on a weekly basis for the Bay Area at large. It was indeed a special time to be a 49er fan. Why do you think Jim Harbaugh was fired, and do you wish he would have stayed on as head coach? Well, clearly, yeah. Obviously, I think he should have stayed on as head coach, but I don't know who was at fault. Imagine there was a little bit of fault from each party. Harbaugh's a great coach, though. A great coach. Phenomenal. Jim Harbaugh, I think he's a great coach. He did have some problems with the old GM, you know. And I don't think he should have got fired. I mean, I feel like a lot is changing for the 49ers just because of him not being there. Yeah, I think he did great. He's a great leader, and obviously all the players love playing for him. Um, I think there was a unanimous consensus. They wanted him to stay around and say their fans felt the same way, but I think our, our ownership needed to throw their pride aside a little bit. Then you start getting into the leaks. I think Jay Glazer came out with the report that was saying, like this is before the season even started, Jim Harbaugh's last season, that he was going to be fired at the end of the season no matter what, even if they win the Super Bowl. So Jay Glazer reported that Jim Harbaugh was going to be out at the end of the year, irrespective of whether or not he won the Super Bowl. This is over. At that point, it was figuring out when it was going to happen, not if it was going to happen. Can he win enough games to salvage this? What's going to happen at the end of it? The leaks of information suddenly emerging from the 49ers front office were both boundless and plentiful, and always finding a voice with members of the national media rather than the local press. Prior to the first game of the 2014 regular season, both Fox's Jake Glazer and the NFL Network's Ian Rappaport reported that Jim Harbaugh had already lost the 49ers locker room, with some players allegedly questioning if their coach was, quote, all in. This complaint was apparently related to the 49ers holding joint practices with the Baltimore Ravens that offseason, forcing the team to travel to Maryland during what was expected to be yet another long and demanding season. Of course, the Ravens are coached by Jim Harbaugh's brother, John, causing many players on the 49ers roster to question whether Harbaugh was truly operating in the best interest of the team or merely himself. I read on NFL.com this morning that some of your players are getting tired of you and you're beginning to lose the locker room. Have you noticed anything like that? No, 
No, I think uh, from our players, I mean, they'll go to hell and back for us and for their team. Players come to you recently. Uh, the Baltimore practices were mentioned as something that players maybe didn't like. No. No, did not. Uh, I, just, just I don't trust, the, and I don't. I don't trust the report either. I mean, uh, any idea where any of this stuff comes from? Uh, not, again, I'm saying I don't think it comes from our players because we got a we got kind of relationship where they come and talk to me about it, and they have before consistently in the past. If they got some, an idea or something they don't think is right, or something they think we can do better, then uh, they come and talk to us. So that's what I see from our players. 49ers wide receiver Anquan Bolden denied the report to the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, stating, quote, I don't know where that comes from. It's my first time hearing it. There's no truth to it. Yet three weeks later, the NFL Network's Deion Sanders claimed on live television that many members of the 49ers roster wanted Harbaugh out and that the team's head coach and its players were not on the same page. Yet Sanders remained elusive regarding the authors of the rumor, only later telling Twitter that his sources, quote, wear uniforms, suits, and ties. Harbaugh's response to Sanders the following day was immediate and succinct. Deion Sanders last night on the NFL Network, going by the league, said that 49 players don't want to play for you anymore. Uh, do you have any reaction to that? Do you at all believe there's anything to this? Uh, God, personally, I think that's a bunch of crap. But, uh, Does it bother you to hear it? Tell people say what they, they say. This is not, you know, there's been other reports, mostly from the NFL Network, other reporters who have reported various indications of this. Lost the law crew, I think, was one of the reports. Do you think there's somebody in the organization who's saying these things? Well, I think, Tim, whenever you're talking about unnamed sources, uh, if somebody's got a good story to tell, you know, they, they want to put their name to it. I mean, if you had a good story to tell, you'd put your name to it. If I had a good story to tell, I'd want to put my name to it. And, so I don't put a lot of credibility into the unnamed source. You know, Trent Delfer this morning was saying that the atmosphere is almost toxic here. Really? Do you get I haven't any seen Trent What's that? I haven't seen Trent or uh, Dion around much. This, of course, echoed Harbaugh's comments during the previous season, when rumors surfaced of his potential interest in taking a job with the University of Texas. Rumors? Do you have any evidence? Do you have any evidence, Art or Tim? Or uh, Eric, any evidence? Or what are we talking? Hearsay here? Hearsay. Hearsay. Well, in Judge Judy's court, hearsay is not admissible evidence. I think we can all agree that an unnamed uh, source is hearsay. Will we not? And in the court of public opinion, why would you give any of that credibility? Beware of unnamed sources. They speak with forked tongue. Nevertheless, by week five of 2014, Jay Glazer's name once again returned to the headlines, stating that the 49ers were absolutely destined to end their relationship with Jim Harbaugh at the conclusion of the 2014 season, regardless of whether the team finished as Super Bowl champions. To his credit, 49er CEO Jed York immediately responded to Glazer's report on Twitter, stating, quote, we are trying to win a Super Bowl not a personality or popularity contest. Any more questions? I bring this up only because your owner responded. There was a report this morning on the internet that you would not be the coach here next year. And your owner basically tweeted out a message, Jim Harbaugh is my coach. Any comment? My destiny lies between these walls with these men.
Yet rumors like this persisted in the national media throughout the remainder of the 2014 season, and it wasn't the first time leaks had emerged from the 49ers front office during Harbaugh's tenure. Most notably, in February of 2014, Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk reported that the Cleveland Browns nearly pulled off a trade with the 49ers, a deal that would have reportedly sent multiple draft picks to San Francisco for the rights to their embattled head coach. Both Harbaugh and York denied the report, yet Florio stood firm, his case only bolstered by Browns owner Jimmy Haslam later revealing that there was indeed an opportunity for the Browns to acquire Harbaugh that February. But the question remains, how and why did these leaks to the press happen? And who, exactly, was responsible for them? Oscar of the Better Rivals duo does his best to explain. I think if I were to create a narrative as to how something like this happens, I think people use these leaks as a way to be subversive for leaders or leadership that they think are not doing the right thing. I think these leaks are a way for them to try and exercise some measure of control and or power or punishment or penalty. Supposedly, Pragmarate was the source of all the leaks, or many of the leaks during the Harbaugh era. And if I were to jump into Pragmarate's brain, which is, of course, dangerous supposition and presupposition on my part, I think he's probably unhappy with some of the decisions that were being made. And his way of expressing that displeasure was to leak to maybe an Ian Rappaport or to leak to someone and try and say, look, this is the real story. Don't believe the spin that's happening. Let's do something to hold these people accountable. We always said, whenever you read a report, whenever you see something be reported, always one, check your source, who's saying it, and then two, ask yourself who benefits from leaking this information. Because I think that's what it was. It was a shadow war. It was a proxy. It was people fighting a battle that they couldn't fight and resolve themselves as adults, and so they fought it in the media somehow. Tim Kawakami has stated in multiple columns for the San Jose Mercury that he believes 49er CEO Jed York and general manager Trent Baalke were the primary sources of the leaks that undermined Harbaugh's tenure. Meanwhile, Stephanie McCarroll of NinersNation.com has claimed that Marate was directly responsible for the leaks, especially those to Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. Regardless of which of the three men were responsible, the water appeared to be poisoned in the San Francisco 49ers front office. And the final chapter in the Book of Harbaugh was coming to an end. Harbaugh's last game, we went into the conference room, just did it like any other press conference. I think he knew that it was his last one. We were walking towards the locker room. The inner stadium broadcast was doing a broadcast that Harbaugh and the 49ers had mutually parted ways. He was no longer going to be the coach of the team. Jim Harbaugh's final press conference with the 49ers was somber, yet delivered with confidence. A cathartic eulogy for four seasons of incredible 49ers football. The light had dimmed, the flame now extinguished. Harbaugh's Niners' New Testament story had come to an unfortunate and abrupt end. There is a football heaven that's awaiting Frank Gore, Justin Smith, Colin Kaepernick, Bruce Miller. There's so many of them. Michael Crabtree, uh, Anquan Bolden, Antoine Bethea, Chris Culliver. So many of them. I mean, whether the relationship was four years or, uh, you know, just a couple weeks, it just... It's the relationships that were made along the way, and that's, um, that's what a team is. And I appreciate the fans, the people of uh, the Bay Area, the 49er faithful, all the good times that we've had, the relationship that we've had, and players, coaches, staff, be friends with forever. That's, that's the way I feel about it. It's, uh, things that were accomplished here were, were, uh, were very, very good. Yeah, it hurts like hell. 
You had a discussion with Jed uh, before the game. Was that just to say goodbye? Was it? What was that conversation generally about? Yeah, that was a yeah, pre-game pre, pre talk. Yeah. Personal. Yeah. Is there sadness after four years of being here and doing the things you did on this day? I mean, is it a sad moment for you? It's a, it is, uh, how, to, how to say it? I mean, uh, uh, maybe don't have the words for it, but say it this way. As, I, as I've said all along, I mean, you work at the pleasure of the, of the organization, and it's come to a, come to, it's been a, a tremendous four years. Um, it's been a pleasure to work and serve for this organization, for these players, for this football team. And I feel great about what we accomplished. Well, the dust has barely settled on the 49ers' final game of the year, but the move already official. We can now confirm reports that the San Francisco 49ers and head coach Jim Harbaugh have mutually agreed to part ways following a disappointing 8-8 season. Harbaugh spent four seasons as head coach of the 49ers. He finishes his tenure with a record of 49 wins, 22 losses, and one tie. During the Harbaugh era, the 49ers won two NFC West titles. They reached the NFC Championship game in three consecutive seasons and ultimately lost to the Baltimore Ravens in Super Bowl 47. Harbaugh is also the only coach in NFL history to lead his team to a conference championship game in each of his first three seasons. Reports indicate that the 49ers front office has already begun its search for the team's next head coach. The 49ers issued a press release stating that the organization and Jim Harbaugh had agreed to, quote, mutually part ways. The team also announced that they had begun their search for a new head coach and that Harbaugh was free to, quote, consider his next coaching opportunity without any constraints. I love and I love and I lost you. I love and I love and I lost you. I loved and I loved and I loved you And it hurts like hell Jim Harbaugh was the best thing that they did and letting him go was a mistake. When he takes you to the championship and the Super Bowl and then you fire the guy, I mean, what are you thinking? Maybe you didn't like him, you didn't get along with him, but put your differences aside. He's the head coach, you gotta respect your head coach. And he made the right decision, he got us to the damn Super Bowl, man. The backlash from both the media and the 49ers faithful was swift and fierce, only softened by the fact that most knew the move was coming in advance, leaving the public to wonder why the 49ers would part with one of the team's most successful coaches in franchise history. Tim Kawakami penned an article for the San Jose Mercury entitled, Electric Jim Harbaugh Shows the 49ers Will Regret This. Drew McGarry of Deadspin and GQ Magazine was not so subtle, penning a scathing rebuttal entitled, the Niners are effing stupid. The way everything ended, of course, it's hard not to just be incredibly negative about it. I mean, I know me personally, I was pretty upset. Uh, I think we had some pretty passionate, I think, uh, podcasts right after that time. And, you know, it was, I think, a very frustrating period because you had gone through all of these years of losing and all of these bad decisions and you seemed to finally hit. And then for no reason whatsoever, it felt like from the outside, three straight NFC championships wasn't good enough and we're just going to blow it all up. All of a sudden, eight and eight is just such an incredible disappointment that you no longer deserve to have a job. 
it was, I think, a very frustrating period to go through because it felt when they got rid of Harbaugh that, okay, we're going to struggle. Like, we're, we're going to struggle to be able to find somebody that's on that level as a coach, and it's going to be tough for them to continue to put together the quality of team that they had during those Harbaugh years. Why do you think Jim Harbaugh was fired as coach of the 49ers, and do you think he should have stayed on as coach of the 49ers? I think it was management across the board. Management drove him out. He could have had us be a contending team for years to come. He's got the deal at Michigan now, and he's going to stay. We all miss him very much. <laughs> Why do you guys think Jim Harbaugh was fired? He's a difficult person to work with, probably. Yeah. I mean, it, they obviously didn't get along very well. Him, Trent, and Jed, I don't know. It, it's hard to tell without having inside knowledge to it, but, I mean, clearly something wasn't working. So I mean, He's a great coach. He had the best winning percentage of any coach we'd had at that point. The question of why Jim Harbaugh was fired as head coach of the 49ers isn't so much a mystery today, four years removed from that solemn afternoon in 2014. Rather, the question that remains is how did the situation, namely the internal struggle between Jed York, Trent Baalke, Parag Marate, and Coach Harbaugh himself, ultimately arrive at the point of no return? The rumors of conflict within the organization first began during the spring of 2014, following the leaks of Harbaugh nearly being traded to the Cleveland Browns. Ann Killian of the San Francisco Chronicle was one of the first to raise concerns, telling her readers in March of the growing rift between Harbaugh and general manager Trent Baalke. Tim Kawakami later echoed this sentiment, but also recalled that the two men were originally inseparable, sharing the same agent and David Dunn of Athletes First, and even at one point playing squash together. I've been really impressed with Trent Baalke. He is a smart guy. He is a hard, hard worker. And uh, there hadn't been too many days, maybe a couple, where I drive my car into the parking lot that uh, you know his car isn't already there. And uh, we're talking pretty early in the morning. Didn't know him before this process started. Been really impressed. Been leaning on him a lot. There's not a day that goes by that we don't talk football. That we don't talk to uh, San Francisco 49ers. We don't think about you know how we can improve our football team and our situation. So uh, learning a lot from him. Yet Kawakami now claimed that Harbaugh and Balky clashed often in regards to various personnel matters and how to properly do business as an NFL franchise. This allegedly included multiple disagreements over draft strategy and free agency signings, issues with Harbaugh's aggressive behavior on the 49ers sideline, and Harbaugh openly campaigning for extending player contracts during press conferences. Do you remember you asked Phil Dawson to stay beyond this season? Yeah. I mean, he seems like... Don't let me do that right now. <laughs> Phil, stay beyond this season, please. <laughs> what he's done. No, I've, I've been remiss in asking him to do that. Let me officially ask him to stay beyond this season. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Okay. Yeah, I mean, 24 straight field goals. Uh, a long-term deal coming up. Pay the man. <laughs> During this time... Killian also reported that Harbaugh's act was beginning to wear thin in the 49ers locker room, specifically with, quote, some key face of the 49ers type of players, though who exactly those players were remains unknown. The continued employment of offensive coordinator Greg Roman was also a known issue for some in the 49ers front office. Even when the 49ers were dominating opponents under Harbaugh's command, Roman was an easy scapegoat for when the team struggled in spots and stretches. Simply put, the 49ers appeared to have more success in offense when the ball was on the ground, in the reliable hands of running back Frank Gore. And in 2014, Rowan began to lean more on the arm of quarterback Colin Kaepernick, which often led to mixed results. One unsourced theory that surfaced during the 2014 season was that Jim Harbaugh was given an ultimatum. 
fire Roman, hire a new offensive coordinator, or face the consequences. This idea only gained more traction amongst the fans and the media when following a home loss to the Seattle Seahawks that November, Trent Baalke's teenage daughter Cassie tweeted out, quote, Greg Roman can take a hike. The 49ers don't want you no more. Greg, obviously, after last game, your name was in the media a lot from what Trent's daughter had written on social media. Uh, he said that both he and Cassie had an opportunity to, to talk to you and apologize. Uh, can you discuss that from your standpoint of what that interaction was like? Yeah, it was very, very concise, very clear. Uh, very, you know, I have children, I understand. And uh, we talked about it briefly, and uh, it's over, and uh, period really not an issue. Then there was the Marathli, the Wizard of the Cap, and the Mystery Man in the 49ers front office, Parag Marate. Years after Harbaugh's departure from Santa Clara, Niners Nation's Stephanie McCarroll penned an article regarding Marate's relationship with Harbaugh, which was volatile to say the very least. According to McCarroll, Marate never surrendered his game day role with the team as the numbers cruncher, and Marate was regularly involved in helping with play call strategies during the Harbaugh era. This allegedly included Marate presenting mid-game suggestions for Harbaugh to go for it on fourth down and went to attempt two-point conversions instead of kicking extra points. Harbaugh, being a more conservatively-minded head coach, often clashed with Marate as a result and soon began refusing his input. Coach Harbaugh is about as competitive a person as I've ever met in my entire life. But if I could provide him something that helps give him an edge, wherever it is, whether it's game management, whether it's salary cap, whether it's personnel evaluation, wherever it is, and he believes it, he's going to use it. And that's also another misnomer about Coach Harbaugh. Yes, he's an old school football guy, ex-quarterback, played in the league for 13, 14 years. But you know what? He's as smart as they come. He's as bright as anybody. And so he's really into looking at how do I create advantages? How do I create mismatches? Prague, what can you show me with respect to different things on and off the field that'll help me get an advantage in this particular game against this particular opponent? And then there was Harbaugh's uneven relationship with CEO Jed York. Again, it was Tim Kawakami who reported on the variety of conflicts between York and Harbaugh, including their disconnect over how to properly deal with players with off-the-field issues specifically with how to handle the repeated bad behavior of first-round pass rusher Alden Smith and defensive tackle Ray McDonald. There was also the unresolved matter of Jim Harbaugh's contract, entering year four of a five-year deal in 2014 with no concrete information available from either side regarding how much money was in demand or how long either side expected the new deal to be. Yet still today, there remains a great deal of frustration surrounding Jim Harbaugh's release amongst the 49ers faithful. The larger question still remains. How could they not make this work? I don't think that Jed York and the 49ers made it clear as to why there was a split. My interpretation of the scenario is that Balky and Jim were tough people to work with. They didn't align and or get along. And I do think that Jim was probably a pain in the neck to work with. And he probably rubbed people the wrong way. And I think that Jim probably didn't think too highly of Jed. He probably thought he was this little kid who never played football. And I believe that he probably made some comment along the lines of like, this meeting's for men, get out of here. That sounds like something that would come out of his mouth. The salacious details regarding an incident between Harbaugh, York, and an unknown collection of 49ers players only came to light months after Harbaugh had parted ways with the red and gold. In June of 2015, the Barrier Sports guys Kyle McClure tweeted out that midway through Harbaugh's final season with the 49ers, York casually walked into a meeting the coach was holding with his players at the team facility in Santa Clara, only for Harbaugh to allegedly tell his boss that he was not welcome to join them. 
as the meeting was for, quote, men only. To assume this incident may have been the only dust-up between York and Harbaugh would be short-sighted, and to pretend that Jim Harbaugh was pure in his attitude and behavior while head coach of the 49ers would be naive as well. And whether or not it was intentional, York later found ways to push back against his head coach. Following a 19-3 home loss to the Seattle Seahawks on Thanksgiving in 2014, Jed York tweeted out an apology to 49er fans who attended the game that evening at Levi's Stadium, writing, quote, Thank you, 49ers faithful, for coming out strong tonight. This performance wasn't acceptable. I apologize for that. I think we all kind of know that he was fired because Jed didn't get along with him and thought that they had to be friends. I mean, there's stories of Jed York coming into meetings with Harbaugh and Harbaugh saying, this meeting's for men only, get out, right? Like, I mean, that's a known thing. And Harbaugh's not exactly the easiest person, even in interviews, right? He's super closed off, does not share anything. Balky was the same way. He shouldn't have been fired for that. It was just personalities that's why he got fired. I don't think Jed York felt, like, respected by Harbaugh, and he's the owner of the team, so I think that's why the conflict happened because Harbaugh's kind of dismissive of him. Obviously, everyone would rather have Harbaugh, but we're not the owner of the team. So I'm sure he thought that the players were the reason they were winning, and then Harbaugh left, and it all fell apart. By all accounts, Jim Harbaugh was not necessarily an easy man to get along with, especially in a competitive working environment like the NFL. And after four relentless years as head coach of the team by the Bay, it became clear that some of Harbaugh's mighty men started to believe they could indeed have it better without him. A huge part of it is Harbaugh's personality, and then another huge part of it is Balky's relationship with Jed. Harbaugh is one of those old school coaches that wants you to grind it on the field every single day, and he will ask the maximum from everybody that works for him. There are so many extremes with him. He's an extreme personality, and I just think that he wore on the players. After you go through three years of it and you're Justin Smith and you've had over a decade in the league, you don't really want a guy with that type of energy egging you on and driving you in practice when your seasons are extended because you've got a postseason. I mean, that's an incredible grind for a player who's been in the league for a decade or longer. This is all speculation. Players went to Trent Baalke, talked to him about it. He went to Jed. Jed trusted Balky. Their relationship was closer, and I think Balky ultimately influenced the decision to mutually part ways. What's clear now, in hindsight, is that this complicated marriage between an aggressive head coach, a sullen general manager, an inexperienced owner, an analytical financial expert, and 53 professional athletes was never destined to endure more than a few years of success or stability. In all of these internal conflicts, big and small, personal and professional, combined to create a perfect storm of dysfunction for the San Francisco 49ers during the 2014 season. Do I think that Jim had some responsibility for how it all went down? I think so. But do I think that at the elite level of competition, you're going to have tough people to work with? Absolutely. Do I think that Bill Belichick is easy to work with? Hell no. But the difference is that they figure out how to make it work. And winning does fix everything, so let's do that. And I don't think that the Niners chose that path. I think the Niners let ego win as opposed to everything else. Jim Harbaugh, I think whatever happened with the ego thing, you know, between whoever, I think we should have made that work, figured it out, you know. Someone takes care of you, you take care of them. Oh, I think he got fired because York and Trent Baalke, there was all this conflict going on, and it just kind of took him down, you know, and there's no reason it should have came to that. He should have been the coach, though. When a coach takes you to the Super Bowl, whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter. He got you there. There's a lot of good coaches out there, and he's one of them, you know. Harbaugh was one of them. It was his success that got Levi Stadium built. 
there would not have been this fan interest, this fervor into buying seats for this new state-of-the-art stadium if the team wasn't good. It made me want to buy season tickets. I was a Levi Stadium inaugural season ticket holder, and it felt like a betrayal. It felt like a betrayal to the fans, to all the people who invested their hard-earned money into the team that was hoping to see a long run of sustained success with a good head coach, and it just felt like the rug got pulled out from under us. It just didn't seem worth it, right? As a fan, you're like, okay, we have one of the best coaches in the NFL right now. You need to figure out how to make it work, not get rid of him and think that it's realistic that you're just going to go and find another one that's just as good. And the larger part of the fan base really wanted to know why one of the winningest coaches in 49er history and one of the winningest coaches in NFL history was getting canned when they didn't really see that the product in the field necessarily merited that. I don't know that it sowed so much confusion as much as annoyance and frustration. They thought they had a really good thing and they thought they had a team that would compete for a very long time and that was taken away from them and they weren't sure exactly why. Starting over. It's easy to hold within. Once it manifests itself within us, it spreads intellectually like a cancer of thought. And with each new thought we have, each new action we take, the anger expands and matures, eating away at what was once a sensible, logical, healthy human being. But anger is deceptive. Most often the host is not responsible for holding on to their anger at all, but rather it is anger that takes control of the individual. Anger appeases desire to vocalize frustration, to take baseless action, and to put oneself and others in a negative space. That is why letting go of that anger and starting over takes strength. Forgiveness, acceptance, and an open mind towards a better future are all characteristics of tenacity. Thus, a fresh start is rare, so when the opportunity arrives to do so, take it. Take it not with doubt, not with fear of the past, but with optimism as your guide. A new beginning is a gift. Embrace it. Starting over. You can't berate people for failing. You can't embrace a culture of failure, but then beat somebody up because they do. My dad always taught us that in baseball. It's like, you charge a ground ball, you go pick it up. And if you make an aggressive mistake, you make an aggressive mistake. Don't sit on your heels and let it come to you and then let it take a bad bounce and then you make an error. Go after it, and if you miss it, you miss it. But you're going after it. And, and I think that's kind of how I live my life. Go after it, and if you fail, pick yourself up and we'll go try it again. What are your guys' opinions on Jed York? I have no comment right now. <laughs> if I were to ask you what your opinion on Jed York would be. <laughs> That's a funny one. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I think most people have the same opinion on what they think of him. I'd say most people are not happy with him. <laughs> yeah. Last game I was here, someone rented a plane to fly over the stadium with a banner. I don't remember exactly what it said, but <laughs> it was not friendly to <laughs> the family of the owners. <laughs> I think the fans, by and large, blame the Yorks for a lot of the bad things that happened in 49er land. And in that decade of darkness, in 03, 04, 05, everyone hated the Yorks. Everyone hated John York. Everyone couldn't wait until John turned the team over to either his son or sold it. 
I think that you can probably make a reasonable argument that that was true. And I think it all goes back to the people that you hire and they did not hire well. They didn't hire good general managers in Terry Donahue. They couldn't handle difficult general manager situations with Trent Balky. And then I think everything cascaded from there. Because when you hire a poor general manager, if they're not good at making decisions and they hire bad coaches, then they're not going to do well and they're not going to acquire good talent. So I would probably put an outsized measure of blame on general managers, but I think the fans probably point directly at the Yorks and they wouldn't be wrong to do so. Monday, December 29th, 2014. The Levi Stadium Press Room. Sitting at a long folding table covered with a black tablecloth, dressed in a gray suit, slightly slouched, and nervously sipping from a plastic water bottle is Jed York, CEO and acting owner of the San Francisco 49ers. To his left, dressed in black, with a small 49ers pin adorning his lapel, is General Manager Trent Baalke. And on this day, less than 24 hours removed from the 49ers' final game of the season, the local media assembled to hear from both men regarding why Jim Harbaugh was no longer head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. All right, thank you for being here today, everybody. Uh, first... I want to thank Jim Harbaugh for four great seasons with the 49ers. He helped us restore a winning culture, a fiery competitive culture. I am greatly appreciative of that. I wish him the best. I wish Sarah and uh, his children the best wherever they end up going forward. Uh, he will always be a part of this franchise and I will remember his time here very, very fondly. I want to thank our great fans, the 49er faithful. We didn't give you enough to cheer for this year, but that didn't stop you from coming out, even in the last two games, where we really didn't have anything to play for. We weren't playing for a playoff contention, and you guys brought it. I appreciate that. No new information would come to light surrounding what led Jed York to mutually part ways with Jim Harbaugh, only that the working relationship between the three men in question was no longer a healthy one. York simply deferred to having, quote, philosophical differences with his former head coach, and that the conversations he had with Jim Harbaugh regarding those conflicts were private. Ted, you guys are in the business of winning football games. Uh, Jim did that as well as anybody. Why isn't he the coach of the 49ers? And this was a mutual decision. Jim and I have had conversations, you know, since he's been here. But in the last probably two or three weeks, we've talked about different scenarios, different opportunities. And ultimately, we just came to the conclusion that it was best for us to go in different directions. But if you have a coach that is so successful, why weren't you able to make that work? Why weren't you able to get the off-the-field issues that you guys might have had, make them better so that you can retain uh, one of the, you know, the highest winning percentage coaches in the history of the NFL? And again, we've had philosophical discussions. And when we sat down, we just couldn't come to a place where we thought moving together was the best for either party. This wasn't us saying, Jim, you're fired, you're not here anymore. This wasn't Jim saying, I, I don't want to be there, I'm leaving. It was a discussion that took place over, you know, a decent amount of time to figure out what's best for everybody involved. And, you know, it was a conclusion that we came to. It wasn't an easy conclusion for anybody, but that's where where we ended up. Can you shed some light on the philosophical issues that you guys had? You know, I mean, the, the discussions that we had were private. You know, I'm not going to get into the private discussions. It was just the right decision for both parties at the time. York also strongly denied being the source of the leaks to the media that season. There were a series of reports about this too from the beginning of the season. 
about Jim's status, whether he would be the coach next year. Were you the source of any of those stories? No. Were you concerned at all when you saw those stories? Listen, I mean, there are distractions for every team in, in every situation. And as a professional organization, you need to figure out how to put the distractions aside and move forward. Do you think the drumbeat of stories, however they came out, undermined this season? Look, again, I mean, you're talking about distractions, and there are distractions for any team. And, you know, I can't say what undercut this season. You know, there were injuries. There were media reports. There were a lot of different things. And unfortunately, we didn't overcome them. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what the distractions were. It matters that we had an ultimate goal and we didn't achieve it. And I'm not pinning that on Jim. I'm not pinning that on Trent. Ultimately, that's my responsibility. I'm the one that people should hold accountable for a failure or a victory. That, I mean, that's ultimately on me. So again, here, I am not saying Jim is the reason why we didn't get to and win the Super Bowl this year. You think about the entire state of disarray that the franchise was in between the leaks and the conflicting reports. And everyone, I think, kind of rightly put that on Jed. I know I did. I was very much banging the, you know, Jed is immature and Jed can't handle this kind of train. And I think that that's where the fan perception began to really take a left turn. And then Jed did not help himself when he came out in press conferences and said things like, we don't raise NFC championship banners, we only raise Super Bowl banners or something like that. And it's like, come on, that's that again, I think, shared that immaturity. It's up to us to make sure we compete for and win Super Bowls. That's our only goal. We don't raise division championship banners. We don't raise NFC championship banners. We raise Super Bowl banners. And whenever we don't deliver that, I hope that you will hold me directly responsible and accountable for it. And so I think the fan perception was they saw a meddlesome owner filling shoes that were too big for what his skill set was at the moment. And they were hoping that he would be able to grow and develop into something better. So, Jed, you have a coach that just averaged over 12 wins a year in four years. What will the expectation be for a coach coming in? To win the Super Bowl. Right away in year one? We expect to win the Super Bowl every year. I mean, our mission is very simple. The San Francisco 49ers win with class. We haven't won, and I don't think we've conducted ourselves with the level of class that I expect of our organization. But Jed York's intentions as owner of the franchise have rarely come into question since he officially took over the team in 2008. It's no secret that York wants to restore the winning tradition to the San Francisco 49ers. Rather, it is York's execution that has historically led him astray, often leading the 49ers down a familiar path of dysfunction, controversy, and subpar play on the field. We're going to do everything that we can to put the right people in place. And we can say anything that we want today. I guarantee you, if I know one thing, we're not going to win today's press conference. Like, that's not going to happen. We're going to win by putting together the right staff and accomplishing the goals that we set out for ourselves. And I'm fully cognizant of that, and I'm fully cognizant that people might doubt what we're doing. And that's fair. That's completely fair. And I welcome that. But we're going to put together the right group of people, and I think we've made it very clear what our goal and objective is. And if we don't achieve that, you should hold us accountable. Well, Jed Dork, and I can't, no, I can't stand, I'm sorry. It's just, a, 
He's uh, he's done some good things, but basically he just doesn't know what football operations as far as I'm concerned. He was a young guy, made a lot of mistakes. I compare him to the kid that gets the keys to the Ferrari for his 16th birthday. Business degree, but not a business person. The long shadows of Eddie DeBarlo and his five Lombardi trophies will always loom largely over Jed York as CEO and owner of the San Francisco 49ers. And York's questionable judgment concerning Jim Harbaugh's departure from the organization, as well as the misguided coaching hires he made following that time, will not soon be forgotten by the local media or the 49ers faithful. There's always going to be skepticism for Jed. I think when you have someone like Eddie who owned the team and the way he did business, the way he was with fans and players and coaches and employees, you can't duplicate that. Jed doesn't want to be him and he never will be, but he hasn't always been the best decision maker or the best communicator. He could win a bunch of Super Bowls and people will still always go, oh yeah, but remember that time when Harbaugh mutually parted ways with the team? He'll always have that. It's kind of going to be just a mark on his legacy if he builds one. People will always have that in the back of their heads. They don't forget. I think it's safe to say that most of the fan reaction we're all hearing over the last 24 hours is pretty strongly negative towards Jim Harbaugh leaving this team. Are, Completely are you, understand that. Are you surprised at all by the intensity of the backlash? Listen, I, if you want to read my Twitter feed, like you, you get a really good sense for the absolute like far end of just vitriol like you're the worst person in the world like I get that people are very nice and respectful to me in person so I don't take that as personally as, as as having conversations with folks but I certainly understand why people feel like you know they're they're upset I get it yet there is now hope that York may have finally found salvation in two long tenured football men that appear to have brought both stability and ingenuity to the proceedings in Santa Clara much of his legacy still remains to be written, but it is clear that Jed York's heart is in the right place, and his future as owner of the San Francisco 49ers just may be on the cusp of a brighter tomorrow. My opinion is actually getting a little better this last year when I think he finally figured out that to just leave it to the people who know what they're doing and stay out of it before I had a not a very good opinion. <laughs> It's a winning cures all thing. And people's feelings about Jed York are going to be directly tied to how successful the team is. And so I think right now there is a growing sentiment of positivity. He seems to have realized that he needs to A, hire good people, which everybody generally feels very positive about the Lynch and the Shanahan hires right now, and then get out of the way. That's a very common trait among good owners across all sports, not even just in the NFL. Basically, we need your money. We need your money. We need you to hire good people and we need you to get out of the way. And, and so far right now, at least, he's providing those things. And I think as long as he continues down that path, his reputation is going to be able to rebuild itself just by kind of blending into the background and going away. The fan base is the one that should control what's happening. And when they're calling for changes, he's got to listen. You know, it's not about selling jerseys and stuff. It should be the fans. You know, the fans are the one that paid the money to see the game. You can see a lot of the mistakes that have happened, and it's translated now, especially with Balky and every, and you know, just look at our roster. And so I give credit to him for getting John Lynch and Shanahan. It's easy to say that, but I'm a Niner fan, so I want them to succeed. So, yeah. It was funny. They had the Jimmy Garoppolo press conference. He mentioned, I don't make any bad decisions, and kind of laughed at himself. 
I think part of it for him is the maturation process. And I think he really wanted to make a name for himself. I think Jed wanted to have his own era separate from Eddie's. And I think that was probably the biggest mistake he could have made. I think everyone hopes that this is an actual evolution of Jed and not just a winning cures all facade. Because I oftentimes have to remind myself that Jed York is 37, 38 years old. When he took over the team, he was still a very young individual. And I think that showed. And I think that showed in his press conferences. I think it showed in the way that he handled really difficult personalities like Jim Harbaugh and Trent Baalke. And I think that he didn't have that elder statesman, that Carmen policy that could save Eddie DeBartolo from firing Bill Walsh three times because he was drunk and mad. And because he didn't have that guidance, I think he made a lot more mistakes. And so I think what the fans would hope, and certainly what I hope, is that this is truly an evolution for Jed. It's truly him learning and growing and, and getting better as a human, and not just the success of Lynch and Shanahan overshadowing or really just putting a facade up for the same crap that he would do any other way. I don't really like Jed York, but I think he did the right thing with Shanahan, and now there's no leaks come out. Everything's been good. All the trades have been good, so I think it's trending upwards. I think he learned his lesson, and he's not getting involved like he was before, so he definitely has to uh, stay out of it, and there can't be any more leaks like there were. He did what he could, you know. It was what it was, and at the end of the day, we're here where we're at. John Lynch is in the building now, so let's move forward. on the next episode of Document 49. Jimmy time Sula, Jimmy time Sula, open up my shirt like Jimmy time Sula, got the gold chain on like Jimmy time Sula. There's no doubt in my mind that this was the right man for the job. The writing was on the wall for Jim Tomsula the moment he was considered, yet the team still decided this was the best option. It was one of the worst press conferences for a head coach. Joan and payroll. I want people to have fun playing football. Tomsula couldn't even tell you what his vision of the team was. Somewhere in there, he said, we're going to run the football. The mass exodus that happened after Harbaugh left just crippled the team. A totally demoralizing season. I think it's important to learn and to grow from your mistakes. Nobody wants his team to win more than I do. If there was a head coach to craft an offense around the skill set of Colin Kaepernick, it would be Chip Kelly. It's really humbling to stand here as the 19th head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. No matter what Chip Kelly did, it was unlikely that they were going to be successful. There were no big free agent pickups. The strain throughout all of that was Trent Baalke. He tore his ACL. The value is just too high to pass up. You don't go for every player that has an injury that's supposed to be great or anything. I think the ownership should have sided with Harbaugh, not Baalke. I apologize for a 2-14 season for being back here again. There were a lot of people that were like, we need to get Jed York out of here. Why shouldn't you be dismissed or reassigned for the same reasons? I own this football team. You don't dismiss owners. Who's your favorite 49er of the last 10 years? Colin Kaepernick. The guy who took everybody's breath away when he had the ball in his hands. I truly believe Colin Kaepernick could be one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. I'm just trying to keep my head down and try to keep it going as long as I can. The turning point in his career was a game in Arizona. Two pick sixes and four interceptions. He's always had a little bit of issues with that second read. That's something I have to fix. I have to be better for this team moving forward. He was viewed as a broken quarterback. Colin Kaepernick sat 
during the national anthem. Having personal experiences with racial oppression. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. It was very easy for people to turn their back on him. Personally, I just don't think that's the right way to protest. I don't come here to listen to Colin. I come here to watch Colin throw a football. It was just time for the Niners to move on from him. I think what I did was taken out of context and spun a different way. You no, know, I don't like it, but I get why he's doing it. It's important that he took a stand for what he believed in. Colin Kaepernick should be in the NFL. It's mind-boggling that he's not on a roster at this moment. I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. Document 49, the rise, fall, and rebirth of the San Francisco 49ers. He wasn't fired. He took a better deal. <laughs> That's not being fired. He did not get fired. He took a better deal. He took $50 million deal to go to Michigan. The organization firing him was a formality. He lost control of that team. He couldn't con no longer control those players, so his stay was over. People weren't listening to him. That's what the, the locker room was, was completely ripped apart. Thank you for listening to Document 49. This program is currently an independently financed and produced project. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show and donate to our Kickstarter. Without your support, there is no guarantee future production will continue. Simply visit document49.com to learn more about how you can help. Document 49 is written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Nicholas Sheldon. Oscar Aparicio, David Newman, and Jennifer Lee Chan appear courtesy of Niners Nation and Pro Football Focus. Abstract monologues written by Sam Klein and voiced by Gil Knight. Additional voiceover contributions performed by Kirby Bridges, Sam Farnsworth, Bobby Kesselman, Jordan Mason, and Nick Mora. Hurts Like Hell is performed by Flurry and produced by Tommy Prophet from Flurry's latest album, Love and War, now available for purchase on iTunes or wherever digital music is sold. Who's Got It Better is performed by Bailey. His latest album with Rich Rocca, The Definition of Explosive, is also available for purchase on iTunes or wherever digital music is sold. Don't even add me no questions, you already know. Yeah, yeah. You already know. Document 49's soundtrack is performed by Syndrome and Jurich, both independent composers from Canada and Croatia, respectively. Whether you are a hip-hop or R&B artist looking for a new beat, or a creative in need of original music for a digital media project, the innovative and extraordinary sounds of Syndrome and Jurich will consistently surpass your expectations. All of these individuals contributed to Document 49 solely due to a shared interest in helping produce the program. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode, be sure to follow them and support their work. Links to their various websites and social media accounts can be found on document49.com. Just click Voices at the top of the screen. Thank you again for listening to Document 49. This program takes countless hours to produce, so your patience during the production process is appreciated. Follow the show on social media to stay updated on when the next episode will be available. Until next time, be well, 
Take care and go Niners. Thank you for listening to Document 49. For more, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast distributor. To support production of the program, find us on Kickstarter or visit document49.com. And for production and release updates, follow Document 49 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Hey, Niner fans. Need a 49er flag for your home, car, or tailgate party? Then check out Judy's Flag City based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. For over 20 years, Judy's Flag City has served as the largest retailer of flags and banners in Northern California, with an endless selection of flags for every occasion. American flags, flags of the world in the 50 states, decorative flags and windsocks, and of course, flags featuring the San Francisco 49ers and the Giants, the Golden State Warriors, the Oakland A's, and yes, the Oakland Raiders too. Whether you're looking to decorate your yard, celebrate a holiday, or support the 49ers on Sundays, Judy's has got you covered. Just click over to judysflagcity.com to check out her selection. And right now you can get 10% off your order by using the word document during checkout. Just type in document as your coupon code and you'll save 10% off of your entire purchase. So visit judysflagcity.com now to help show your pride for your country or your San Francisco 49ers with a brand new flag. Or come visit the store in person right here in Belmont on the Northern California Peninsula. That's judysflagcity.com. Fly your flag proudly with Judy's. Suicide is not inevitable for anyone. Healing, hope, and help are happening every day. If you or someone you care about is feeling hopeless, displaying extreme mood swings, increasing the use of alcohol or drugs, or isolating from others, you or your loved one may be showing warning signs of suicide. But help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 for support. The Lifeline is available 24-7 across the United States and is free and confidential. To find out more about how you can take action to help someone in crisis, visit BeTheOne2.com. That's be the number one, to.com.